evening, everybody. Hi, um, welcome to uh, tonight's Economy Forum. Um, uh, I'm Rob Lyons, I'm, as well as being uh, the Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, I'm also the convener of the Economy Forum. Uh, the UK is in an interesting position in terms of its place in the world. After Brexit, relations with the EU are clearly very different from how they were before the referendum. Uh, and yet our future is still very much tied up with um, that of, of the EU countries. And across the Atlantic, the Trump administration is no more. So what does it mean for the UK now that Joe Biden is in charge? So not only do we have the much heralded and sometimes ridiculed uh, special relationship with America, but effectively we have one with the EU too. So what does it all mean? Now, before I introduce our speaker, I just wanted to say that the Academy of Ideas has been determined throughout this past year to, that what, whatever happens with physical lockdown, and thankfully we're starting to come out of that, um, intellectual life shouldn't be in lockdown. And we've worked all the way through putting staff on furlough, relying on support from donations. So if you would like to chip in with the price of a pint or even a large round, if you like, uh, to support our work, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. Right, I'm delighted so we have Jonathan Grant to introduce the topic. Jonathan is a London-based chartered accountant specialising in serving global clients with operations in the UK. He deals extensively with people and businesses <coughs> excuse me, across both the USA and the EU. And away from the office, he's an independent arts critic. So um, uh, Jonathan's going to speak for half an hour, a little over half an hour, um, and then, as usual, we'll come out to the floor for questions and points, and we'll have a bit of a debate for an hour about uh, the things that uh, Jonathan's been talking about. So, hopefully, I can now spotlight Jonathan, and Jonathan, the floor is yours. Uh, Rob, thank you. Um, good evening, and yes, Rob, thank you for those uh, kind words of introduction, and to you and uh, the Academy of Ideas uh, for inviting me to speak this evening. So, about this event, special relationships, the UK's special relationship with the USA is a matter of historical reference or record at the very least, since Churchill first coined the phrase some 75 years ago. And be that relationship loved, loathed or derided, it's, it's hard to deny. Uh, it's hard to deny its existence with, uh, with the erstwhile British filmmaker Peter Morgan even going so far in 2009 as to make a movie called, unsurprisingly, The Special Relationship, but albeit that particular story focusing its narrative specifically upon the Blair Clinton years, of course. And the other special relationship to form the subject of this discussion is, of course, between the UK and the EU. No statesman has yet bestowed Britain's cross-channel ties with a description as weighty as that which Churchill hung around the transatlantic accord. So this description of a special relationship is very much lowercase and a much more generalized use of those two words. But special, it most definitely is, uh, because no other nation in the world is an ex 
member of the European Union. And to that extent, Britain's relationship with Brussels is actually not so much special as unique. Uh, let me say from the outset that my objective in this talk is not to be arrogant enough as to presume to deliver answers. Rather, my approach will be uh, alongside slipping in a few opinions here and there to try and frame questions rather than comments and to hope that this can lead into a lively discussion thereafter. Um, a very brief introduction about me. I'm not a politician, nor a professional pundit, nor a journalist, nor an academic. Rather, uh, I'm a businessman, a London-based chartered accountant, and have spent the last 25 of my 40 years career working to a large extent, but not exclusively, with clients who are headquartered overseas and who have inwardly invested into the United Kingdom. Don't worry, um, I can see eyelids drooping already. This discussion will have nothing whatsoever to do with accountancy, uh, nor will it be a uh, sales pitch for my practice either. But rather, I'm hoping that this talk will be a sharing of observations shaped and nuanced from the privileged position that I've enjoyed of meeting and serving clients from across the Western world, um, including, of course, uh, the UK too. Um, as Rob mentioned, away from my calculators and spreadsheets, I've also served as an independent arts critic for the last 10 years or so and have witnessed perspectives from that community, not so much upon the United States, um, notwithstanding people's dreams of, uh, of appearing on Broadway, but not so much upon the United States, but certainly upon the European Union and the UK's journey towards leaving the EU that have afforded me a further perspective upon the impact of Brexit. Um, sadly, of course, the world of performing arts has been largely shut down as a consequence of the pandemic. But when that world was vibrant, and hopefully that vibrancy will return, its cultural impact and indeed that industry's strong associations with the EU provided the substance for some uh, challenging debates over the years. But returning to my profession, one of the first things that I learned as a rookie accountant is, is what you must never discuss with a client. And the big three forbidden topics uh, were, as you probably imagine, religion, sex, and politics. A sound and reasonable premise, one may think, and uh, that professional credo has indeed served me well over many decades of bean counting. But to my surprise, increasingly over the last decade, and even more so after the 2016 Brexit referendum, once many of my overseas clients had finished discussing their business concerns or their annual accounts or their international tax planning question, it will have been an all too frequent occurrence that they have swiveled the discussions, perhaps by now over lunch and a glass of wine, to matters political. Informed Americans in particular, and from both sides of that country's political divide too, have 
over the last five years often badgered me with what the heck are you guys doing over there? Didn't you vote for your Brexit like years ago? And it has been these conversations as well as my observations of friends and clients in the EU as well as those coast to coast in the States, including the Rust Belt. Um, and I have to say, albeit of course, those observations have been restricted to Zoom screens for the last 15 months or so that has laid the foundations for this talk. That and over the course of the last couple of weeks, some fascinating conversations with a number of politicians and academics, all speaking off the record, uh, even if one member of the House of Lords was almost insistent about wanting to go on the record, but all willing to add their take on the UK, the USA and the EU as they see it. Um, before verbally crossing either the Atlantic or the Channel, uh, I'm going to speak about the UK and its international placing. And it's a comment that, coinc that coincidentally sits nicely right now with the UK hosting the G7 meeting of foreign ministers in London's Lancaster House. We, we know that the UK is approximately the world's fifth largest economy. The single country that we export the most to is the USA with numbers of circa $57 billion. Germany is the next largest single nation uh, that we export to uh, with values there of about 41 billion. So the USA leads by quite some measure. However, if one examines the UK's top 15 export markets, then we find that within that top 15, the EU nations in total account for some 150 billion. Uh, so the EU is massive to us as an export market. But of course, even that in turn is dwarfed by the volume of the UK's imports from the European Union, where again, it's Germany who's leading the field in exporting to the UK. And, it's, and it's, that, it's that dwarfing that, of course, gives rise to the much referred to trade deficit between the UK and the EU and numbers that place us very much as a significant and valued customer of the European Union, even if it doesn't feel perhaps we've been treated that way. Um, but that's a slightly different question. And stepping back from this statistical abyss, what is clear is that the trading relationships with both the European Union and the USA are not just special, however one interprets that word, but they are also economically vital. It's it's also fair to say that there is more to the UK's international connectivity and indeed its relations around, as it looks both east and west, than simply its volume of trade. The UK's global network of trading and diplomatic connectivity is largely unmatched across the developed world, reflecting a fusion of diplomacy, tech, and globalization alongside the vestiges of the now long defunct British Empire and also the continuing vibrancy of the Commonwealth. I 
will not speak to the rights or wrongs of any nation's colonial or empirical past. That is a far too sensitive and complex subject for today. But from a trade and investment perspective, what remains from Britain's international footprint right into the 21st century is a legacy that's evidenced by most of the UK's embassies around the world, littered as they are across the different sectors of each continent, but all with very sophisticated connections for stimulating investment into the UK and trade with the UK. And few, if any, EU nations can match that international Rolodex of connectivity or networking. And likewise, the USA struggles to match the UK's global trading and investment outreach. Uh, I am now no longer surprised when American or European clients reach out to me for assistance in developing their subsidiaries, not just in the UK, but around the world, largely because of the likelihood that the UK, through its Department of International Trade, will probably have corporate connectivity in that part of the world that my clients home territories, international trade and investment infrastructure simply cannot match. So having painted a backdrop of the UK as an important global player, even if it is not amongst the largest of global trading nations, let's now look closer at these two special relationships. And I'll start with looking at the USA, which has a particular relevance this week with President Biden having just marked his first 100, 100 days in office. Uh, in quite a spectacular gaffe, it was only very recently that Biden announced that anyone earning less than $400,000 would not be paying any income taxes at all. A blunder, unsurprisingly, that was not widely reported over here. Uh, before, of course, it was corrected to refer to the fact that it would in fact be anyone earning up to that income level who would not be facing, in fact, an increase in their taxes rather than an exposure to income tax. And notwithstanding quite what an impact on the American economy such a tax cut would have yielded, uh, it seems that amidst all the talk and the bluster, there is likely to be little change in the essence of the UK's relationship with the USA, with much of the evidence of the relationship between our nations being, to use a common phrase, baked in to some extent, almost irrespective of whoever the current incumbent of the White House may be. The trading links have already been referenced. Well, uh, the defence links between the two countries have been reaffirmed only this week with Britain's newly commissioned aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth setting off on its maiden deployment and carrying a complement of fighter jets from both the British and American armed forces. And over recent decades, the interpersonal relationships between prime ministers and presidents have almost iconically captured the transatlantic zeitgeists of each particular time. Thatcher and Reagan had a meeting of minds. 
Blair and Clinton enjoyed a shared vision. And of course, subsequently, Bear, Blair and George W. Bush developed a relationship that was forged in the fires of, of 9-11. Indeed, the marking of that day's four horrific attacks on the USA by the Queen some two days later was, for many, the most striking definition of the two countries' special relationship because it was on the Queen's instruction at the changing of the guard ceremony on September the 13th, uh, some two days after the attacks, that she instructed the band of the Coldstream Guards to play the American national anthem outside Buckingham Palace, a, an act that for many defined the essence of the special bond between the two nations. Stepping back to my presidential prime ministerial timeline, next up was Barack Obama, whose relationship with Gordon Brown was unspectacular at best. Although from a headlines perspective, it was Obama's connection with David Cameron that will of course be remembered by many over here uh, when he uh, firmly championed a remain line pre the referendum, famously and uh, equally curiously, telling the UK that they would be, quote, at the back of the queue uh, when, it came to negotiating a when it came to negotiating a trade deal with the states following a departure from the European Union. Next, of course, came Trump. Amidst his much proclaimed love for the UK and Scotland in particular, beneath the bombast and the rhetoric, nothing really changed. And now, under the Biden administration, it was only yesterday in London that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken commented that the USA has no closer ally, no closer partner than the UK. However, and this interestingly is one of the intersectional aspects of tonight's talk, Blinken was also keen to emphasize that Northern Ireland's Good Friday Agreement must be protected and as I will touch on shortly, the complexities of the island of Ireland, of both the North and of the Republic, will have a significant impact and are already having a significant impact upon Britain's relationship with the European Union. I've touched upon the subject of a US-UK free trade agreement, a subject that has talk, talked about for years and years with little progress and under the Biden administration still appears as elusive as it has ever been. Is it any closer now? Well, perhaps our discussions later can tackle that conundrum. But yes, the relationship with the United States, despite its torrent of naysayers, is probably destined to remain as special as it ever has been. Turning eastwards now, let us consider the unquestionably uh, special relationship that we enjoy with the European Union and its component member nations. And by its nature, this section of my talk is likely to be more akin to a Brexit, where have we got to, as much as the European Union, where are we heading to? So, while 
the UK's relationship with an independent USA dates back to the late 18th century. The UK's relationship as an independent nation with the European Union is, of course, barely 15 months old. And to consider how special or otherwise that relationship may be, we need to look back at the journey that has taken us to this point in history. Uh, unlike, of course, the 13 colonies that defeated the British army and went on to declare American independence in 1776, Britain's seceding from the European Union was thankfully not preceded by a bloody conflict with Brussels. But while no blood was literally shed, there was a civil political war of attrition that had been brewing for years and which ignited spectacularly in 2015. Um, there is much talk around what our relationship with the EU is emerging to be. But sifting through the talk, let's look at some key historical facts. We all know what happened, but it's amazing how quickly we can forget the details. So bear with me for a brief PowerPoint of the timeline to Brexit. So, in 2015, uh, the Conservatives were uh, leading, well, governing with a Lib Dem coalition to govern the country. David Cameron entered the election that year expecting a hung parliament, with cynical commentators suggesting that in pursuit of the subsequent and definitely unavoidable coalition, his manifest commitment to a referendum would need to be tossed onto the bonfire of compromise as he sought a fresh coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Of course, on Friday, May the 8th, 2015, Cameron awoke to a slender majority of 12 and the first Tory outright win for more than 20 years. Uh, and his referendum was therefore guaranteed to have to take place. Um, so he, at that point, as we know, promptly uh, uh, resigned. Uh, uh, well, no, sorry, I'm sorry, I jumped a paragraph. Uh, the referendum took place in June 2016 with the majority of those who voted choosing to leave the European Union. And of course, following that referendum result, David Cameron did indeed uh, promptly, promptly resign to be replaced by Theresa May in July of that year. Uh, in March 2017, Theresa May formally triggered Article 50 to begin the two-year countdown to Brexit. Uh, and in June 17, she went to the country in a general election, which led to her losing her majority. And that takes us into uh, through 2018 and into 2019, where the UK had long been expected to be leaving the European Union at 11 p.m. at the end of March the 29th. However, during March 2019, the government sought permission from the EU to extend the date to June. 2019, and that permission was granted. 
Then in April of that year, Theresa May asked the EU for an extension to October, which in turn was granted. Then in July 2019, Theresa May resigned and was replaced by Boris Johnson. And I have to say at this stage, as I'm explaining this to the American clients who've asked what have been going on over the last four years, they've lost the plot with so many changes and so many extensions. And then in October of that year, Boris Johnson proposed a Brexit deal to Parliament that, uh, oops, uh, I'm losing my slides here, proposed a uh, Brexit deal to Parliament, which failed to be approved. Um, and then requested another extension to the Brexit um, uh, deadline from the EU, which was granted until January 2020. Johnson then called his general election in December 2019, won a substantial majority uh, uh, based on a reaffirming of his commitment to get Brexit done by the end of January 2020. January 2020 came around, the Royal Assent was given to the Withdrawal Act, and on January the 31st, 2020, the UK left the EU, entered a transition period, and uh, which in itself ended on December 31st. So, to summarise, uh, <clears throat> the referendum results through to the end of the transition period saw the UK going through two changes of prime minister, neither of which occurred as a direct consequence of two general elections, uh, together with three extensions that were requested and granted by the EU to secure the result of the 2016 referendum eventually. At this point, I will stop my slides. Um, and revert back to me. So, the talk and bluster has of course continued throughout 2021, but that talk has also been permeated by perhaps the most memorable of political actions that occurred at the end of January this year and which stemmed from two of the most sensitive and contentious areas that exist between the United Kingdom and the European Union, those two areas being Northern Ireland and the COVID-19 vaccine. So I've touched upon briefly, the island of Ireland was always going to pose a complex situation to address. The deal on leaving the UK and formerly known as the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, itself recently passed by the uh, European Parliament, included an adjunct relating to Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol, of which more later. Um, as regards the vaccine, freed from the constraints of a collective approach to a vaccine solution for the UK, Boris Johnson formed a much documented and heralded vaccine task force soon after leaving the EU and soon after the onset of the pandemic, which between them developed a world-leading vaccine strategy, the benefits of which are obvious to us all in the UK right now. In fact, indeed, from a conversational point of view, where once my continental clients will be keen to pursue extracurricular conversations around Brexit, the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
most recent months have seen these conversations become far more nuanced and poignant uh, and far less chatty because it would have been inappropriate and crass for me to speak praisingly of the UK's vaccine rollout to folk who themselves may well have been and often still are desperately and anxiously awaiting the arrival of the vaccine in their own country for them and their loved ones. It's, it, it, it's truly been a, a sensitive time in all sorts of, of ways. And so back to January, when a panicked Ursula von der Leyen was desperately seeking to enhance the EU's access to vaccine supplies. And at this point, I will charitably assume that that was her motive, rather than a desire to impede Britain's remarkable progress. And it was across Belfast, Dublin and Westminster that jaws dropped as von der Leyen turned to the Northern Ireland Protocol and announced the invoking of the protocol's clause 16 emergency powers that would effectively and immediately have imposed a physical border across the island of Ireland, thus breaching much of what had been achieved under the Good Friday Agreement. That this announcement was made without prior reference to neither the governments of the UK nor the Republic of Ireland nor the Northern Ireland Assembly fueled frustrations on both sides of the Irish Sea. Within a few hours, von der Leyen had climbed down and withdrawn her announcement. But nonetheless, and importantly and potentially quite usefully, there'd been a demonstration from the EU that in pursuit of the bloc's self-interest, the needs not only of the UK, well, they were no, we were no longer an EU member anyway, so a little bit of contempt for the EU could possibly be understood. But also the needs of the Republic of Ireland, a full member of the European Union, could and would be shamelessly disregarded, from which we can form our own opinion, or upon which we can form our own opinions. There's a strong body of opinion over here that contends that the Northern Ireland Protocol, as it stands, is unworkable, posing the single largest threat to a harmonious relationship between the EU and the UK. A member of the House of Lords drew my attention to the European Convention on Human Rights, specifically Article 3 of the Protocol's first convention, which references the absolute right to free and regular elections to legislature. All European countries currently comply with the convention, except that is for the province of Northern Ireland. The noble lord went on to explain that there are now three lawmaking bodies sitting over Northern Ireland. Firstly, there is Parliament in Westminster. Then there is the Northern Ireland Assembly acting under the legislation of UK Parliament with devolved powers and which in certain areas is competent to make law. And finally, there is now the European Commission, which if it changes regulations that are now in place, those will have immediate and direct effect in Northern Ireland. And while the people of Northern Ireland have a direct electoral connection to both the Westminster Parliament and to the Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Assembly, 
they have no representation whatsoever in the European Parliament. The noble lord continued on this basic question about the human rights, the electoral rights of the people of Northern Ireland, and what a stark contrast those people are currently forced to endure when compared to the values that the European Union proclaims. Uh, it remains a difficult time for a lot of Northern Ireland. Some uh, great British Britain-based firms have stopped selling to the province and the range of goods available in the supermarkets there has narrowed. This problem may well worsen as the grace periods that cover checks on supermarket produce are expiring through this year, as major UK retailers have already warned. Concerns have also surfaced over a variety of detailed issues, ranging from the import of seed potatoes to the movement of pets between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, regulatory barriers to trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland are potentially a much bigger problem that those that now exist between Great Britain and the EU. Northern Ireland is heavily reliant on Great Britain for supplies of goods of all types, and so is very exposed to trade frictions created by the Northern Ireland Protocol than the UK as a whole does from having left the EU customs union and single market. It remains possible that the protocol may over time cause a significant rise in prices for Northern Irish consumers and cause massive inefficient trade diversions. And on top of all this, with Northern Ireland left behind in the EU single market for goods, it stands to benefit less from smarter regulation and new trade deals than the rest of the UK. A solution to the problem may be to exempt the bulk of GB Northern Ireland trade, which goes to identifiable end customers from both customs and regulatory checks, although it's unlikely that the EU will agree to this or anything like it. But given the scale of economic damage and trade diversion that the protocol could continue to cause, the UK government may have a strong case for doing so unilaterally under the aegis of Article 16 of the protocol, effectively invoking emergency powers and with, um, for want of a better word, a precedent having been created regarding Article 16 back in January, there remains an interesting degree of protocol as to how the Northern Ireland Protocol, sorry, there remains an interesting degree of potential as to how the Northern Ireland Protocol may evolve or whether it may, as many hope for, and interestingly, I've come to understand that those hopes appear to straddle the province's religious divide may be ripped up. A broad opinion that I encountered in my recent discussions and research is that Northern Ireland faces serious economic harm if the protocol is not fundamentally changed. And my final words on the subject of Northern Ireland are verbatim from a distinguished parliamentarian who I asked, how damaging do you perceive the flaws in the Northern Ireland Protocol to be as regards our ongoing relationship with Brussels? Their reply was, well, I think they're actually fatal. I think it's impossible to have a relationship 
with Brussels. Such are the concerns over the potential of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Moving away from Northern Ireland and onto the subject of the, the vaccine and the EU in general, there's much to be said, but there's also much to be avoided. And I will not, for example, be drawn into the rights and wrongs of the EU's stance towards AstraZeneca and how that is playing out, not only in the courts of justice, but also in the court of public opinion. I will, however, in conclusion, and also for the first time ever, refer to Michel Barnier, who of course led the EU's team through the Brexit negotiations. Quoted in the French press yesterday, Mr. Monsieur Barnier is reported to have said that the UK's vaccine programme was easier to implement than under the EU's bureaucracy conceding that Britain's COVID vaccine program showed how individual states can act faster than the bloc in rolling out the life-saving jabs. And while he stopped short of praising Boris Johnson's government for the vaccine rollout, he admitted the EU had faults with its jab program. Why? He said, because we wanted to decide for 27 and not alone. And it is easier to decide alone than as 27, above all, when you're not under an EU competency. He went on to say, we don't know how to take risks. The British took risks by financing the private sector. The Americans took risks. We don't know how to do that yet. Much of my research and reading for this presentation has exposed me to the opinions of many learned minds who are of the considered view that notwithstanding the UK's position as a significant customer of the European Union, there is ultimately a malevolent attitude within Brussels that desperately wants the UK to fail and thus to be held out as an example to all of the perils of leaving the European Union. My hope, is that our European friends can actually show us more of the honest, self-effacing rhetoric just heard from Barnier. Such attitudes can only contribute to our unquestionably unique relationship with the EU, potentially becoming something truly special. Um, I thank you for your time and attention. Uh, and as I outlined at the start of this talk, I bring with me more questions than answers to this highly charged subject. Um, I'll now hand back to Rob to chair what I hope can prove to be a fruitful discussion. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, so um, there's a lot to get into there, really, in terms of the, I mean, there's two, in a way, there's two quite separate things going on in terms of America and the EU, but also we're stuck in the middle of all that and uh, we have to kind of negotiate our place in the world. So if you've got questions or comments, if you go to the participants button at the bottom of your screen, or it may be hidden under the reactions button. Uh, and if you want to raise your hand there. So if you go to participants, you get a list of the people who are here and there's a raise hand button there or if you go to reactions you'll find a raise hand button under there um, 
Any questions or comments? Uh, people have been stunned into silence, Jonathan, by your by your presentation. <laughs> so I'll, I'll ask. I'll, I'll get the ball rolling. And that. Oh no, Medi. Medi's come in. Medi, uh, far away. I'll have a go. Thanks, uh, Rob. Jonathan, thank you very much for that uh, tall divorce. I really enjoyed it. You've really raised some of the some of the issues that we as a country have been uh, grappling uh, at least uh, since um, 2015 that your slides show. And you've highlighted all the uh, all the pluses, all the um, minuses but one thing you left out is um, as a result of what we've been going through the state of the union i i fear personally i love the country i fear for the state of union i think we are sleepwalking in a breakup of the united kingdom uh, what we've actually have um, witnessed in the Northern Ireland in the last, uh, at least since the beginning of the year, the discontent, you highlighted the discontent and unworkability of the Northern Ireland protocol, which uh, the Prime Minister offered as a, uh, as a microwave-ready solution that we actually have. It actually took its, perhaps the biggest political victim last week in the uh, resignation of the first, uh, first minister. And um, what is actually going to follow it's um, in Northern Ireland and the um, desperate, I would say, um, danger of the Good Friday Agreement on unraveling itself. And on top of that, the double whammy of the Northern Ireland protocol and, and heaven knows what. And when we look Northward, we see this state. Uh, we'll see perhaps uh, on Thursday, day after tomorrow, what will actually happen in Scotland with regard to the uh, move towards the um, independence and the noises one hears also in uh, in Wales. Therefore, although I admired your presentation, but I believe you left out this, uh, uh, the, 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 the faith, the, 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 the faith, the faith rather of the, of the union. And oh, one okay. would be rather fearful. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Maddy. Um, let's just get, uh, Peter, do you want to make your point? All right, yes, just a very quick question. Um, always talk about Northern Ireland. I'm presuming the reason that the Northern Ireland um, agreement went ahead was probably when Biden first met uh, Johnson. He said, look, Congress, there's no way they're going to 
give a free pass a free trade agreement if there if isn't something with Northern Ireland. Now, I'm not really an expert on that, but how much does internal US politics and US internal Irish politics uh, play into this? Okay, the uh, role of internal politics there. Thank you very much. Uh, Phil Mullen. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Rob. Th Thanks, Jonathan. That was very, very, very useful. Um, I mean, just as a couple of people already spoken on the on the Northern Ireland Protocol, just to say, I was very pleased to hear your conclusion on that, which uh, was indicating that there would not be uh, not so much a relationship between London and Brussels, but really any basis for uh, meaningful relations between Britain and, and any really uh, leading European country for as long as that protocol is in existence. I think the, you, you quoted somebody to say that that's just going to be impossible. So I think the conclusion from that is that however disruptive it's going to be, um, that will need to be uh, need to be scrapped. And it was you know disingenuous of, of, of Boris to have uh, signed up to that in the first place. It was bound to have these consequences. Um, so I very much agree with your, with your conclusions on that. I wanted to broaden out in terms of the broader uh, topic of special or any relationships really between different countries in the context of one of the um, sort of one of the lessons of what has come out of the last you know 15 months of, of, of COVID and the pandemic because it's been widely noted um, by many that one of the casualties of the last 15 months has been to reveal that uh, international cooperation is a very uh, far diminished uh, category that that uh, I think uh, the Financial Times Martin Wolf summed it up very well when he said, you know, given what's happened with COVID, you would have expected uh, us all to be impressed with the benefits of international cooperation. And yet the opposite has happened, that people have seen the opposite of cooperation and that he said out of fear countries have turned inward rather than outward um, in this context of this great global crisis. And, uh, and I think that's very pertinent because I think in so many ways, and I think perhaps your, your quotation from Michel Barnier as well indicated that, where he was comparing you know, what Britain was doing as a nation with the incapacities of the European Union as a 27 nation bloc to do much on vaccines, uh, that this, the, the language now is much more openly accepting that there are different national interests around the world and that all the discussions about or the the buzz phrases about autonomy, about self-sufficiency, about resilience and stuff, all veer towards that sense of not so much a change in international relations, but a much more open recognition by political leaders that there are distinct national interests. Sometimes it's a matter of, of just recognizing that, sometimes it's a matter of espousing them. And I think that's very important in terms of a different uh, international environment for discussing things like uh, special relationships. So I was wondering what you thought about the consequences of what I would call the fraying of the Western Alliance, which has been more brought out into the open in the last 15 months, what consequence that has for the areas of continuity that you pointed to within your presentation? Great, thanks very much, Phil. Um, I've got a question and I'll take Nico and then I'll bring Jonathan back in. I've just got a question just as a, as a background of what is, what is exactly the problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol. What does it demand and why is that causing problems? It just would be useful. I think quite a few people will want to know a bit more depth on that if you could provide it. Um, uh, Nico. Um, I really enjoyed the uh, the talk and introduction. It's very and uh, uh, and informative. Um, 
part of the, uh, the idea of the special relationships always, well, in, in modern times has been questioned as being a, a kind of construction um, which favors the US and, uh, you know, flatters the UK. Um, but part of the reason that the United States in modern times has wanted to have a relationship with the UK is because of its membership of the EU. And it was um, partly not wanting to take an Atlanticist position that prompted Adenauer in Germany and or West Germany and uh, de Gaulle in France to uh, refuse the UK's membership of the EC uh, on a number of occasions. And I wonder how much that is a factor these days for the United States that the UK is not no longer a member of the EU and whether the sort of geopolitics and geoeconomics have changed such that that's not really a factor. And as a, a follow-up, how much is um, the Biden administration's um, insistence that Northern Ireland, well, Ireland being treated, you know, well and respected and the uh, Good Friday Agreement being respected actually a real issue for the United States? I mean, is it crudely playing to the Irish uh, American voters, Democratic Party, um, or is it a sort of more fundamental issue for the US administration, or is it just a way to uh, to manipulate Britain and uh, for the United States to achieve its own ends? And, and will we ever have, and do we want any kind of free trade deal with the United States? So sorry, three questions in one. Right, okay. Jonathan, do you wanna come back on all of those? Yeah. You don't have to answer anything if you can't. Sure, sure, sure. I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll jump around them chronologically in the, the way, in the order in which they've been posed. Um, tackling the most recent question um, from Nico, um, and um, the, the free trade agreement with the USA has been talked about for a very, very long time and has never arrived. I don't think it's arriving anytime soon. Um, and if I hark back, in fact, to a slight marketing ploy that I used to American clients, it's that we speak your language in um, Europe's time zone. So I recognized the very much the fact that, that the UK um, has been a stepping stone culturally for America into the broader European Union markets. Though what I have to say is whilst Brexit has been highly flagged for the last few years, um, albeit only becoming a certainty within the last 18, 24 months, uh, I have seen no let up in investment into the UK. And I am talking about my business again. I have seen a very vibrant level of, uh, of investment of corporate, both, both asset acquisition and corporate development in the UK. So my broad approach to this, and I'm, I'm seeing it from my lived experience, is that even despite Brexit, um, UK, the UK's trade relationships, including with America, will continue to thrive, whether or not um, there'll be uh, a, a free trade agreement with the USA. I'm, I'm going to be really, really sceptical. We've done very well without one so far. Um, 
full stop on that. As regards uh, Biden's references to, and, and his, his, I shouldn't say references, that's far too dismissive, his, um, his, his love for his Irish heritage, um, I don't doubt the sincerity of, of his emotions. Um, I recognize also that there's a significant play to a, a part of the American electorate in that. Um, though I'd also hasten to add that America is still famously isolationist in its attitude and to a large degree, people shrug their shoulders and say, so what? Um, interestingly, chatting to a couple of, of American academics over the last couple of weeks, uh, where we've seen the tragedy of the death of Prince Philip and, of course, the complications arising from the uh, much-reported uh, interview with, uh, with, with Meghan Markle on television and, and, uh, and Prince Harry. Uh, what, what struck me from both of the people who I spoke to was the level of respect that um, those people who were aware of the United Kingdom felt towards the loss of Prince Philip and that how that, in their perception, overshadowed the far more shallow impact of the uh, Meghan and Harry interview. Um, going on to the question about um, the, the pandemic and international cooperation, it's an interesting question because ultimately the role of government has or should be to protect its people. Um, sadly, heaven forbid, that's why wars happen, uh, either well, wars happen because some nations may be aggressive or other nations may not want to be aggressed against. Um, but the role of government should be to protect its people. And ultimately, um, you, I don't think you can blame, for example, Britain's very focused attitude to rallying its, its, its vaccine task force and getting something done with a lot more efficiency uh, than uh, its, its neighbours over the water. Uh, that being said, and as a challenge to your point, I look at what Britain's attitude was where it vastly overpurchased vaccines, always with a view to sharing what surplus uh, it, it may have amassed with other nations. And, and certainly some weeks back, there was much talk about Britain's vaccine surplus as and when it arises being shared with the Republic of Ireland um, in the event that um, the European Union sees supply issues. Um, it's, it's, it's very complicated. You're not wrong in, in what you say, um, but also, it's it's there there there's more nuance than than black and white. Uh, I'm now going to pick up on that comment on the union, the the very first question that was raised. Um, I've I avoided referencing the union in my talk largely because gosh, it's it's an evening it's an evening on its own. Um, there are those who uh, who have heard and who have reported, and it may be that, that, that Claire may even have heard it firsthand, this threatened message from the European Union that the price that, the, that Great Britain will pay for Brexit is to lose Northern Ireland. Um, as I say, I say that from hearsay rather than from uh, any statement of fact. Um, but I 
do not believe there will be any tears shed in Brussels should the union fall apart. Um, personally, I hope it doesn't happen. And, and if it does, and if something fundamental were to happen to the union, I think that would cast a very particular skewed vision uh, from this country across to the European Union. Rob, I'm going to duck your question on what is the problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, because the answer to that will be far too massive. Okay, right. <laughs> right, Jonathan, you can take a little breather, but keep taking notes. Um, I'm going to uh, now go to Hillary. Uh, hopefully that'll work. Thanks, Rob. Um, so you, you kind of anticipated my first question, which was around there's always been this argument hasn't there that the UK is, is, is uniquely placed in language and time zones for, for international um, trade and uh, um, financial market trade and I just wondered whether the whole discussion these days about asynchronous work about it doesn't matter where you are when you're working or when you're working you know is, is there anything in that that threatens that um, that unique position that the UK has often claimed which gives it the, the, the area for the special relationship. And, and so that's kind of an America-focused question. And then an EU-focused question is that it does seem to me that a, a big um, increase in, in trade with the EU, with them providing services, is, is in the EU providing personal and healthcare services, particularly because of their, their different demographics, their different population pyramids to ours. And it seems to me that's, a, that's an area that's, that's certainly highly regulated here and, and a potential area for triggering quite a lot of conflict and I just wanted to do that's something we needed to keep an eye on. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Sorry, hello. Sorry, I realised I was on mute. When I was Can you hear me? Yes. James, go ahead. Well, uh, I didn't quite catch up with you there, uh, Hillary, but I had the impression you were underlining Phil's point about, uh, you know, the potential for uh, a more confessional approach to national interest and therefore a more conflict-ridden, you know, geopolitical environment. Did I have that right? Great. Um, I just wanted to say on that note, uh, and, um, you know, maybe, uh, Jonathan, you would like to comment, I mean, for me, the special relationship uh, with the US, first of all, colleagues, was always about subordination. You know who, who did it and who suffered from it. From D-Day onwards, the planning for D-Day. Um, so I think that's important because the EU-UK relationship, apart from the capitals, inverted commas, sneer, or whatever else you want to give to the special relationship, was not always immediately that of subordination until their recent attempts, I think. Um, now, Jonathan, I think you lately turned to investment questions. I'm sure Rob or Phil or Daniel can help me out here, but my overriding impression is that the scale or at least the stock of American investment rather than just trade with the UK still exceeds the Siemens uh, and, you know, the, even the Hitachis uh, of this world. 
And the other thing is, I just saw a report in the Daily Mail of all places. I think the scale of Chinese FDI is something like 163 billion at the moment, which is not that much, but as a stock, you know, they've clearly been building fairly fast recently, you know, the last few years. Um, now, I mean, we can even say, look, a special relationship, definitely with lowercase, will shortly be claimed between Britain and India, right? If we're cutting off China, you know, they're going to claim uh, India next. So uh, I think all of these special relationships, you know, need taking them with a bit of pinch of salt, really. Um, it seems to me that the Five Eyes arrangement um, is arguably the main event, buttressed by a mutual um, support for Saudi Arabia, uh, for NATO, for uh, not much business in Africa. America's not really active there, even in the way that Britain is. Um, support, obviously, in Central Asia. Uh, and I've, I don't know if colleagues can help me, um, but just recently there was a lead article in the Telegraph Business News, it's so obscure, um, saying that in some kind of security or technology matter, and it wasn't the alternative to GPS, that OneWeb is being offered by the government as an alternative to satellite communications by the US, um, some learning notes being taken by our host, Rob, here. I am delighted. Um, some other kind of security tech system, cyber, quantum, I don't know what it was. Britain wasn't going to go the American way. And we'll see it again fairly soon with Trident and other things, or, or F fighter jets, right? It's not always harmony on the defense front. I think it is on the Five Eyes front. Um, probably, possibly on the climate front for a bit. But in some important decisions about security, we saw it a bit with Huawei. Uh, you know, it's not always unanimity. Uh, and usually the US, uh, going back to the relationship of subordination, tends to get its own way, which is what happened with the Huawei way. <laughs> okay. <All> right. <laughs> Very good, James. Very good. Uh, James Matthews. Thanks, Rob. Um, and thank you, Jonathan. Um, really appreciate that presentation. Um, a couple people asked around uh, U.S. internal politics. And uh, just to say that, it unfortunately, um, I don't think the UK, uh, EU really is much of an issue domestically. I think there's not a lot of knowledge of what's going on um, currently. And, uh, you know, popularly, it's probably Meghan and Harry is probably the most, you know, things that people would say come to mind. The, I don't think, Biden doesn't really play up his Irish heritage. There really isn't an Irish interest group in the way that you might have said back, you know, in Kennedy's day. Um, but um, I, and I think though that um, the most impression you get is that uh, has to do still with Trump and that basically 
anyone that was pro-Brexit is basically seen as like Trump. And so Boris is seen as like the British version of Trump. So there's quite, among the elite uh, liberal opinion formers, there's a lot of anti-British, anti-Brexit sentiment, very pro-EU still. And um, so uh, I think that kind of guides it. And, and I think it's more from the Biden point of view, not even so much like being anti-Brexit per se, but I think it's really just being a status quo par, uh, perspective. And I think what he says, I, which I think you could take it as word, is that he's concerned about the Northern Ireland Protocol leading to the unraveling of the Good Friday Agreement. And he just doesn't want that, that whole thing to unravel because of this. Now, I think the point though is that in, uh, and this is a point that uh, Phil Mullen makes in his latest book, you know, when you have status quo powers, but underneath everything, the world's changing, they actually contribute to more conflict, more, more, um, they're more of a problem in the way that they try to respond to try to stop change instead of, instead of dealing with it. Um, without copping out on the issue of the triangle between the US, UK and e EU uh, on their relationships, I would have thought that what's most likely to trigger a problem is what happens with China and in, and in Asia. You know, it's gonna be over that kind of dynamic where you're gonna, that's gonna force them to, to, to uh, in their divisions. And finally, on the economic aspect of it, um, you know, there was all this talk with Trump and, you know, gonna do a trade deal with the UK and that never happened. Um, and I just don't see anything like that happening under Biden. I don't see any desire to, to do something which might seem to be rewarding the UK for Brexit. Um, that said, I think, James, you mentioned this, right? I mean, the ties economically are really strong. From what I understand, the U.S. is the largest investor in the U.K. of any country. And likewise, which may be a bit surprising, is the U.K. is the number one investor in yeah. the U.S. And, that's, and, and I agree, it's really probably more the capital than the trade that matters and that those ties are very, you know, they're happening despite whatever going on at foreign policy and stuff like that. And I, you don't really see that. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't continue. Thanks. That's very useful. Thank you very much, James. Um, Daniel Benami. Okay, I mean, I think if I were to tackle this question, the, the key question I would ask is special to whom? Because I think Jonathan covered very well from the perspective of Britain, obviously it's completely right, the relationship with the US is very special. The relationship with the EU or Europe before that more generally was, was very special. But I think that if you looked at it from an outer space perspective, I don't mean that literally, obviously, but I mean kind of just looking down and trying to work out what are the most important relations in the world. Uh, I think Britain now, is it's not nothing, but it's a kind of medium, uh, sized power in the world and there are more important bilateral relationships so arguably now for example in, in global terms the special relationship is between the US and China I mean it's a very troubled relationship but it's probably the key bilateral relationship in the world 
So if I was talking, if I was trying to work out Britain's position in the world from a geopolitical and economic perspective, I think there are two broad things I would need to take into account. The first that Phil Mullen mentioned is the geopolitics, which is very, very conflicted in many ways. So there's a conflict between the US and Europe. There's a conflict between the US and Asia. And there's a conflict between Asia and Europe as well. Uh, and when I say Asia, mainly, in fact, China. Uh, and Britain has complex relations with all of these different countries. And of course, there's also a conflict within Europe, even within the EU, which is really being played down by EU powers. And the EU is not on the verge of collapse, but there are quite big tensions within the EU as well. So Britain is a medium-sized power. It's quite an important economy, but it's not the global number one or two, as Jonathan rightly said uh, in his introduction. So Britain has got to come to terms with an increasingly complicated geopolitics, and at the same time, a complicated economic shift where it's completely right to say the US and Europe remain very important and very large, but the global economy is shifting more and more towards East Asia and China. So it seems to me looking at the world from a British perspective, you have to kind of bear these, things, these kind of broader global shifts in mind and work out how Britain can best tackle them. Yeah, that's very useful. And uh, this, this, this question of, you know, is, uh, is, is the UK slash EU slash America a bit redundant? Uh, Monica has asked in the, the chat, um, isn't this all a bit yesterday? America is in crisis and will soon be overtaken by China, as far as the EU is concerned on recent performance over von der Leyen's vaccine fiasco and the UK's rise from the phoenix of the phoenix from the ashes of Brexit, how stable is the EU? So, you know, these old powers arguing over things is maybe a, a bit sort of by the by, as it were. Anyway, uh, to Paul. Hi there. Yeah, mine's more of a kind of simplistic point, but I'll Right into the discussion, there's kind of been a feeling, or maybe people have pointed out that there's a possibility of kind of COVID economic bounce due to pent up pent up demand in the economies, especially like in Europe, America, and the UK. And if that does kind of occur in the economy, you know, at least numerically in numbers terms, looks like it's better off. To me, this potentially kind of takes pressure off governments to a certain extent. Um, and I'm wondering if if that did occur, because a consequence could, could be that there's actually a kind of a delay in any kind of re reconfiguration of relationships, especially in the West, you know, whether they're special or not, you know, it, it could be six months, it could be four years, I don't know, it depends on what, what actually happens. But so I suppose my point is there is a possibility that there's almost a kind of temporary return to kind of normality sort of around globalization and stuff, apart from as several people, but I remember James Matthews mentioned the difference is the relationship with China. So my point is, I guess, is the is is there a possibility short term for a kind of semi return to normality and tensions between the EU, UK, UK uh, America and UK actually being alleviated in the short term? Okay, great. So Jonathan, I'm going to give you a chance. Just is there anything you're itching to get back in? Yeah. Um, so I've got to, I'm going to pick on a, on a, on a, on a few points and I, I'm not going to answer everyone's question or comment. Um, uh, the very first 
comments that came from some a, 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 a woman who said his name, I didn't scribble down, um, uh, referencing um, uh, the, the, the ability to work globally and work internationally and does that impact on um, uh, how, how significant the UK may be. Um, I think whilst the ability to absolutely globally work, work anywhere and, and pitch up and, and connect to, 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 to a computer um, and, 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 and do, do what work has to be done, absolutely can physically be done anywhere. But as a market, and remember that the bulk of the UK's, yeah, a, a large amount of the UK's income, I couldn't say what proportion comes from its financial services sector. One of the reasons of that is that the UK's financial services market is very mature and very trusted. Uh, and we have, we have capital markets to here that are largely respected the world over. Now our systems and our judiciary are not perfect. I'm not, I'm not flying the flag for saying that they are, but compared to most, uh, the, the, the legislature under which businesses would prefer to do contracts is very often English law and significant transactions are often conducted on the British capital markets, largely because of their trust and, and their sophisticated structure. Uh, I don't think the European bosses have come, whilst, whilst they sit within the European Union, they've not come close to matching what London can offer as a, as, as, a, as a center, whatever your views may be on the fact that that's such a large proportion of the UK economy. I want to touch on the subordination reference that James um, uh, raised. And, and for me, the subordination was if ever defined by um, George W. Bush's Yo Blair comment. Um, which kind of summed it up in two words. So you're not wrong. Um, but also there is, yeah, on, on, on reality, on, 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 on uh, the, the, the uh, comparing like with like, America dwarfs us. Um, that being said, uh, and you also referenced the five eyes, and I agree with you, there's a fundamental level of integrity that exists within the five eyes network, even though I read recently that New Zealand are, are, are turning into a bit of a flaky member. Um, we'll see. Um, James, um, you, you touched in, in your comments, uh, your very wise comments about 2016, about, about Boris being associated with Trump. Um, and I absolutely get that. 2016 with A, the election of Trump and B, the, the Brexit referendum vote, uh, saw polarizations in, in the political spheres on both sides of the Atlantic, the likes of which I don't think had been seen for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was struck, gosh, it must have been at a client lunch in 2017 or 2018 with, learned and learned there, they're in the education sector, clients in Washington, DC. We've had a brilliant meeting. We're sitting down over lunch and, and, and my client says to me, Jonathan, what is this? Because anyone who voted for Trump or voted for Brexit has to be an absolute peasant. Um, now, 
uh, I found my own powers of diplomacy sorely stretched. I'm pleased to say from a commercial and my income point of view, that client remains a client. Um, but the level of blinkered ignorance that can be found even amongst the educated um, uh, members of well, of society, both here and on the other side of the pond, is at times quite shocking. Um, something that struck me with uh, Ursula von der Leyen's um, rather unilateral and brutal action at the end of January over Article 16 was that it took the scales away from many people's eyes. Uh, that the European, I mean, as we know, her actions were very, very short-lived and, and her announcement was revoked within hours. Uh, notwithstanding that, there are uh, many people who found that they learned something from that episode from von der Leyen that they had previously not seen in the European Union. Um, that being said, when I was having a dry run of this uh, conversation with a very good friend of mine, another Londoner, uh, who uh, referred to the UK, not as a second tier nation, which it unquestionably is, we're not a first division economy compared to, to America or China, but referred to us as second rate. And that struck me as quite a damning view of, of, of one's own nation. And uh, it, 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 it left me mildly, mildly troubled. Um, I think I'll leave my comments there. Um, and I apologize if, if, for, for, those, for those, those questions that I've not responded to. Okay, any, any uh, well, we're coming uh, to a close soon. I'll, I'll give Jonathan a, a chance to sort of have a final bite before we do, but any other points or questions that anybody wants to raise, please do so now. I mean, the one thing that I want, wants to say, because you were, um, in your opening remarks, Jonathan, you made the point about nuance. So, and there's been quite a bit of discussion about the potentials for uh, disagreements and conflict and for national interests to assert themselves. So perhaps we need to, what, what the basis for cooperation now? Are we, is it just that you know, that's the way things have always been and this sort of, this rules-based order, the old order will just kind of linger on or is there any, any basis for a sort of renewal or, or a, a more dynamic uh, relationship of cooperation as well as conflict? Um, I, I mean, thank you. Nuance, nuance is, is everything and, and everything and nothing. Um, I, it, it's hard to say whether it will be, um, whether the old world order will be upended. Um, clearly, I mean, there was a reference made earlier this evening to, to, the, to the cutting off of China and I, or the UK cutting off of China, and I, I'm really not sure that that's going to happen. Um, the world order is changing, um, and I'll, you know, I, will, I will leave my comments at that. Okay. Any final thoughts? Um, otherwise, I'll let Jonathan make any final comments himself. 
Okay. Um, right. Any, any, any other stuff that you want to, to, to raise before we uh, finish the evening? Oh, I, I would just like to thank um, everyone who's participated um, and indeed those who've, who've just, just attended and watched and listened. Um, it's a it's it, it's been a privilege to to share my thoughts this evening. Um, the world is is in a state of of, of change with uh, you know and whether whether Brexit will be the start of a dam breaking in the European Union. Who knows? Um, I I hope my aspiration is that there are more Michel Barniers to be found across the channel who are prepared to look um, self-deprecatingly at themselves. And I, I, don't, I don't hold Britain out as not needing to look self-deprecatingly at itself either. We're far from perfect. <laughs> that, that's probably a suitable <laughs> note to wrap my comments up.